Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Rishi Sunak has been making headlines all week, but not in a good way. There was already plenty at stake for the Prime Minister this year, but now he has bet £1,000 with Piers Morgan that his Rwanda scheme will succeed. He also found himself under fire for a retort to Keir Starmer during PMQs. And a whole load of Conservative MPs, including former Neighbours star Holly Valance, have been calling for a new kind of popular conservatism. For Labour, meanwhile, the election feels just that bit closer after this week. The party's deadline for finalising its draft manifesto has passed, we understand. And at the same time, it has found itself on the defensive after the government published its official costings of some opposition policies. And finally, we've heard today the death knell sounded something where I think we saw coming, but has finally been acknowledged by the Labour Party for its £28 investment in the green economy. So we'll be talking about all of that. One safe bet for the months ahead is that we'll be hearing more and more about the NHS. Rishi Sunak has admitted that the government has failed on a pledge to cut NHS waiting lists in England. So what needs to be done about our health services? This week, the Times Health Commission published its final report and recommendations, and we're going to speak to its author. Joining me throughout are IFG duo Catherine Haddon and Stuart Hoddenut. Hi, both. Hi, Hannah. Hello. And I'm delighted that we're joined again by Rachel Sylvester, columnist at The Times and chair of the Times Health Commission. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for joining us. Very nice to be here. To start with, I wanted to turn briefly to the story that started the week, and that's the health of the king. It was confirmed by the palace that Charles III has been diagnosed with cancer and will step away from public duties for the immediate future while he undergoes treatment. Kath, we were getting quite a lot of calls from journalists Mm. when this news broke. So tell us, does it raise any constitutional questions? No. Not at the moment. Um, So the questions we were getting were what were the constitutional implications? But the statement from the palace was very clear. It's he's stepping away from uh, some of the sort of engagement with the public and so forth. They've now clarified and said that that was as much because of the risk of infection rather than he wasn't well enough to do it. But they have been very clear that he is continuing on with his state duties. So uh, receiving a red box every night uh, with sort of details of what's going on in government policy. His audiences with the Prime Minister, although sometimes they might be by phone call, work of the Privy Council, signing bills, all of these sorts of things will continue. So there isn't a hiatus at all in his uh, constitutional role. It's, you know, a health issue. And uh, that's how they're dealing with it. One of the other questions we got was about councillors of state and the role that they play or might be called upon to play. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been around for years. And actually what the government did a couple of years ago was to increase the uh, number of the people who can be councillors of state. So it is people who are in line to the throne and they've changed it so that uh, the Duke of Edinburgh um, and the Princess Royal are both councillors of state. So it increases the number because obviously Prince Harry and Prince Andrew and Princess Beatrice are all um, non-working royals. So they didn't want them to be taking councillors of state duties. And really, all it is it's like a substitute role and they use it anyway if the monarch is abroad um, and then some government business needs to happen uh, privy council meetings or anything being signed or whatever so um, it's something that you know exists and is used all of the time it's available but there's no indication at the moment that they need to use it for anything. Rachel I know you've had your head rather in the health space this week for other reasons any thoughts on this story? For me there's the human dimension that cancer is just the great leveller Anybody can get it, whether it, you know, a king or a cleaner. Uh, I had breast cancer a couple of years ago. It was treated, you know, I had radiotherapy. It's tiring, but you can 
hopefully get over it. Um, we don't know exactly what kind of cancer the king has, but what matters is that it can, anyone can get it. And what's important is to catch it early. Uh, and the investment in diagnostics uh, and scanners and all of that is so important for that reason. But really, this is just a human thing about um, how it can affect anybody. Yeah. And they were already talking about after um, he went into hospital to deal with the benign prostate enlargement. Um, they were already talking about how many more inquiries had happened on NHS websites and so forth. So in a way, the fact that they are making it public, something that didn't happen with his grandfather, is a, another example of how the monarchy is shifting under King Charles and the way in which he wants to do things slightly different than his predecessors. But just linking it back, Stuart, to the, the work that you've done on mm. um, sort of NHS infrastructure and so on, the fact that we are with one of the countries with one of the, in the OECD with fewer scanners, fewer yeah. of these diagnostic um, bits of kit available to us is, is relevant here, right? It's it's a, it's a real it's a real concern for people. I think I saw one estimate this week that the number of people on the waiting list who might have an undiagnosed cancer is as high as twenty seven thousand people. So the longer you have to wait for care, the harder it is to access care, to access diagnostic tests. Could allow people who otherwise would be treated earlier to to have their condition worsen. Yeah, well, we'll come on to talk about much more about that later in the podcast. Let's turn now to the politics. Rachel, do you think from a comms point of view, it was wise for the PM to do an interview with Piers Morgan in the first place, let alone <laughs> to let himself get apparently tricked into a bet? Oh, no, it just it came across so terribly, didn't it? First of all, the fact that you've got a thousand pounds to just throw away and flush away and be willing to bet on something you may not win. Most people wouldn't could only dream of having a thousand pounds to as a bet. It's extraordinary. Um, but then also it just highlights the fact that the chances of him actually achieving this pledge are pretty low. And this isn't even stopping the boats, which is the actual pledge. This is just getting the flights off to Rwanda. So what's strange to me is they seem to be doubling down on this Rwanda policy with decreasing chances of actually achieving it. And the £1,000 bet is just so crass. Kath, what did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Prime Minister Downing Street have tried to play it down as if, you know, it, it wasn't, he didn't really take up the bet. He just shook his hand and, you know, and there hasn't really been that much focus on Piers Morgan and why he thought it was okay to start making bets about this particular policy or government policy or bets of that kind. But it, it just shows the sort of the difficulty or at least the perception that, that Rishi Sunak has difficulties in these kind of moments. And so getting caught out doing something like this is something, again, that people will be saying, well, how's he going to be in an election campaign? It's also that sense of um, almost playing political games with human beings' lives. So the people who are coming over on small boats, you know, you may disagree with the fact that they're coming, but they are people. They're not just pawns in some political game. And there was a slight parallel with the slightly distasteful joke about trans people with Brianna Gray's mother in the parliamentary gallery this week, um, where Rishi Sunak made a joke about Keir Starmer's inability to decide whether or not a woman was a woman. And it, it just that sense of when you start waging culture wars, there's a danger that you lose sight of the human factor, that all of these things involve people uh, and people can be hurt just feels a bit like the politics takes over everything rather than the substance. 
And Stuart, we'll turn to the NHS in more detail later, but is the fact that Sunak admitted that he's off track for his one of his five targets, his target on cutting NHS waiting lists, which he set himself at the start of last year, is that a significant moment? It is both significant and not significant. It's significant in that he's finally now admitted something that was obvious to the rest of us. And I think it's good that he's sort of been less evasive and less mealy-mouthed than he has been in the past when talking about this target. It's not significant in that it doesn't really change anything, doesn't really give us any new information. The waiting list is still 390,000 cases higher now than it was in January last year. There are still long waits for care. So it doesn't materially change anything, but it's definitely welcome that he's wrestling with this a bit more openly. But from a Conservative MP's point of view, um, not entirely welcome in terms of the messages they're taking out to the doorstep, I guess. And speaking of that, Rachel, we've seen a few more Conservatives say that this week that they won't be standing again uh, at the the next election, won't be hitting those uh, doorsteps, most significantly perhaps Kwasi Kwarteng. And a few more of them join to launch this new popular conservatism or popcom. Is this basically all just people thinking about the aftermath of the election and, and what happens to the Conservative Party and, and their role in that. Yeah, I love the fact that the autocorrect turns popcorn into popcorn. It's just like, <laughs> get your popcorn for the disaster movie that is the Conservative Party. There's just a sort of incredible lack of self-awareness for, from Liz Truss and these popcorn people. So Liz Truss has got a book out soon called 10 Years to Save the West. This is the woman who managed to crash the economy, f- force people's mortgages to go up. Um, it's a, absolutely astonishing lack of ability to realise you might have made a mistake. And somebody who used to work for her um, in Downing Street said to me um, soon after she'd left that she was the only woman in politics who had absolutely no imposter syndrome. And there's that (laughs) sense of an inability to kind of question yourself. It's really strange, I think. And I think you're absolutely right. It does show that it's all pointing towards what happens after the election. You can see that as well. Kemi Badenoch positioning herself, Suella Braverman, Penny Mordaunt. They're all getting ready to launch their leadership bids, not even very covertly. Yes, I imagine we'll be seeing plenty more from them all over the rest of the year. Let's turn to Labour. We're recording on a Thursday, which is the deadline day, we understand, for Labour's draft manifesto. But first of all, let's turn to the story that's been dominating the day for Labour, and that's the ditching of its 28 billion green energy pledge. Rachel, how do you feel this has been handled? Well, there's been so much stop, start, stop, start, on, off, on, off about it, hasn't there? But I think what this really says is that caution is Labour's defining principle now, and it's all about proving that they can be trusted on the economy. And they have managed to achieve this, you know, unprecedented situation where they're ahead in the polls on the economy going into an election consistently. I think that's never happened before, actually. And it's, I think, always the party that's ahead on the economy and ahead on the leadership has previously won. Um, So they're, they're just absolutely adamant that they're not going to do anything to throw that away. The problem for me with the 28 billion was always the fact that it's almost a slightly macho tokenistic putting a number on everything. You know, the fact that 
reform is only reform if it involves spending a huge amount of money with a figure attached. I think it was foolish to have put a figure on it in the first place. They didn't need to. And then now, obviously, it looks um, like they're changing their minds, even though actually they'd sort of backed away from it already because they said they were going to only do it if they could afford to. So effectively, they're saying they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have necessarily done it. Uh, and they've said also that they would factor in anything that the Conservative government had already spent. So it was being eroded. And I'm not sure how much it really cuts through to voters at this stage. I think probably what's most important for them is what position they go into the election campaign with. Yeah, I think there's two different things going on. One is the message discipline and they have really struggled on that and that's why the media have been able to sort of jump on them because it's like, you know, one day they're briefing out that, you know, they're sort of sticking to it but there's some caveats to it but it definitely is still really important pledge and then they're saying, oh, we're going to U-turn on that shortly, look out for the U-turn and I'd lost track of it. I thought they'd already U-turned but apparently the U-turn was again coming today. So I think if you're the public and maybe that's a strategy, if you're the public you probably don't know and you're probably confused but you can believe either way but I think there's a second debate going on which is what you're saying about you know do you need to put numbers on this and how specific should you get in terms of manifesto policies and you know is it better to have a sort of broad pledge where you're giving a direction to the public and you're giving a sense of why you can vote for us or do you need to have as it were a mandate for a very specific policy that you are going to achieve like a, as if it's like a pact with the electorate. And it does seem like there is a very fundamental debate going on in our politics about people who think that it should be one direction or another. And some people think that a good election strategy is that if you can win the election without having, you know, overly prescribed manifesto policies, you're probably better off in a better starting position as a government. And others believe that no, to do effective big reform, you've got to have very clear, bold mandate for what you're going to achieve to be able to do it. So it's those two tensions that are playing out in real time within Labour, as well as in how everyone's talking about it. Rachel, what do you think the significance of manifestos is now? As, as I've said, the, we've heard that ahead of a possible, obviously, May election, Labour's want, racing to sort of tie down what, what it would have in, in a manifesto. But do you think anybody cares about manifestos anymore? Not really. I think people vote quite instinctively, don't they? And they vote with their hearts as much as their heads. But manifestos can be a disaster. Remember the longest suicide note in history. Remember Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto. If that manifesto contains a collection of policies that even if they're individually popular, are collectively frightening or seem incompetent or seem impossible, um, then that's a disaster. And it is absolutely critical, particularly for Labour, that they can be trusted on the economy because that's been a sort of historic weakness. I think it's really interesting. I spoke to Starmer about this, actually, when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. And he said, actually, they have got a very ambitious set of missions, you know, whether it's clean power by 2030 or halving violence against women and girls over the course of the parliament. So they have got these missions. It's just a question of how much detail you put into the manifesto. And I wonder whether actually they will be more radical than they're saying if they do get in. So, for example, on social care, where Streeting, when he was giving evidence to the Health Commission, he sort of said, pretty much, we know that if we get in, we're going to have to do something about it, but we're not going to put it into the manifesto, because if we do, it'll turn into a massive fuss. And every time anyone puts anything about social care in the manifesto, it's the death tax or the dementia tax. So, 
in some ways, avoiding turning that into a political football is a good thing. The problem is you then end up without the mandate for radical reform. Uh, but they have actually, they may not have made a big fuss about it, but they have said some quite radical things, for example, on education. A review of the entire curriculum and assessment system would be pretty radical uh, or could be pretty radical. There are sort of straws in the wind there, which they're not necessarily highlighting. Yeah. That's really interesting. And of course, that was your last commission, wasn't it? Exactly. So, uh, yes. I think there are things that they are planning that they're not necessarily going to turn into a big issue. And Kath, just to just tell us quickly in terms of technicalities, how the manifesto process works. Yeah. With so Labour. Uh, from what we can tell, shadow departments have been asked to submit their plans or their ideas for the manifesto today. Um, it seems like it will then go through a process of sort of rigorous testing. So central units will, you know, explore all of those and uh, test them or red team them to see, you know, are they vulnerable on that? Does it stack up? You know, what do we think about this particular one? And then presumably there will be a backwards and forwards with the shadow teams and the advisors about them and a sort of negotiation. Obviously, with the Labour Party, they also involve the party in various ways. So how much the National Policy Forum will be involved in that. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, for Labour, as well as for the Conservatives, the, the manifesto that is then produced is something that is held very closely by a very few number of advisors close to Keir Starmer. So Keir Starmer still has quite a lot of control over the final product. The risk for Labour, I think, is, you know, as we've just been discussing, it's not just about what your strategy is um, in terms of how you know, specific you go as well as how bold you go in public. It's also about the message discipline of can they go through that process, which could be the next month or so of negotiating their way through it without leaks, without people briefing against each other about their you know, favoured policies. Because we saw with the 28 billion, even before Starmer had managed to go and do the next announcement that he was going to do, it had again leaked. And it is a problem for Labour if they are, as it were, as it's the same as it is for the Conservatives, that that internal sort of party dynamic message discipline um, and so forth, it just creates chaos in the public sphere. And that's the thing that both parties would obviously want to avoid. So, Stuart, I mean, the, as Kath's saying, the sort of the politics, the process may be tricky and hold pitfalls, but there's also real questions of substance, aren't there, about the manifesto? The big question we keep asking, of course, is how a Labour government would provide the funding that we think public services need, or if it doesn't, what it would do differently. And do you think we're going to get answers on that ahead of an election? I think almost, almost certainly not. I think that's partly back to Rachel's point earlier on. They are very dedicated to maintaining their credibility on the economy part of which is to do with public finances. And they've signed up to the Conservative spending plans for the next three years, which our research shows is incredibly tight for certain unprotected areas of spending, which includes the criminal justice system and local government in particular. I think neither party really at the minute have been that honest about what those spending plans would imply for service performance. Prisons are almost at breaking point already. And if you then put some large cuts over the next three years into that into that system, it's likely to fall over. So I think there's really some sort of fantasy spending plans going on. Um, Labour have made some spending pledges, for example, two million more appointments in hospitals, more dental appointments, and they've also allocated some funding for that. But most of it seems to come from abolishing the non-DOM tax status, which is is big, but it's definitely not an endless pot of money. 
I think apart from that, Labour seemed to be relying a lot on the sort of reform fairies it's been called to try and uh, improve public service performance. And we're definitely in favour of reform here. And we think there's definitely space for that to improve performance. But maybe to come to what Rachel said earlier on as well, it, that, that does cost a little bit of money often up front. Maybe it's not large amounts, but often a little bit at least. So I think it's not an, it's not a magic bullet to say that reform is going to solve everything. There's a really good example, actually, because uh, one of the recommendations we made in our health commission report was for uh, a digital integration of the NHS, a, uh, much more data sharing. We called it a patient passport. And Keir Starmer, he was being interviewed on Times Radio that afternoon, and he said that if Labour got in, they would back that and they would introduce it. Um, and there is a cost attached to that with the technology, both with the software for making sure all the different systems can integrate, but also the actual computers that are needed within the NHS, as you were saying, Stuart, the you know, we spoke to doctors who are taking half an hour to switch on the computer. There was one consultant, she was standing in for the junior doctors during the strike, and she came to write up the notes at the end of the ward round, uh, and it wasn't possible to cut and paste data. So she ended up retyping. This is one of the most highly paid, highly skilled doctors in the country. And she's retyping all this information multiple times. And they're all even within one hospital, but let alone within between hospitals and GPs. So there is a cost up front, but there's quite a quick saving. And you think about the productivity gains that the private sector's made through technology. Uh, And there's one hospital, Milton Keynes, where they have introduced um, this integrated system and they've introduced um, much better technology. And the chief executive there says for every pound you spend, you save four pounds. And Chelsea and Westminster brought down their waiting list by a third using this data sharing platform. So the benefits are enormous. So there is a small upfront cost, but really significant gains. And I think that's what the question is, are they going to be willing to do that? And I think they probably will. I think, think, yeah, maybe it comes back to what you're saying earlier on. They Maybe they're more willing in power to sort of reassess what the the state of public services and the public finances are. We had Karen Smith at an IFG event here a few weeks ago who said uh, something along the lines of Labour would need to look carefully at the books if they come into power to assess what is and is not possible. So I think that does leave a little bit of room still at the margins for those types of investments that you talk about. But I think you're not going to get a massive fully costed reform program in their manifesto. I always remember the point you made in one of your reports a while back, Stuart, which is that the NHS is not yet fully making uh, use of technologies such as the telephone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't need to get to yeah. high high tech AI things. It's yeah. actually like there are technologies which don't require much investment. Not to, using to fax use. machines exactly. would be a start. Be, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Kath, the other thing we've seen this week has been Labour policies being costed by mm. the government. What's this all about? Yeah, so uh, this is something that, you know, to most outsiders, you'd, you'd look at it and think, well, that doesn't make sense. Um <sighs> Basically, it's one of these constitutional quirks that there is a precedent for it. So it is done. And so we put a sort of logic on why it is done and it has continued and nobody's really sat and thought, does it make sense? Basically, the um, argument is that because government policies MPs can ask questions about it. They have to be costed. They can probe them and so forth. That therefore it is fair that the government should also be able to cost opposition policies. Um, another argument that Nick McPherson, uh, former permanent secretary at the Treasury, said was in play when he was doing this is that government ministers would be able anyway to ask for things to be costed and work through and so forth. And if they were doing that in order to use it to 
attack Labour policies. That's a sort of misuse. So it'd be better to do it in the open. Neither argument really stacks up in the way in which they're used. So we saw this week conservative politicians who are members of the government putting out saying official independent treasury analysis has said this, but that's misleading because what this is, is that ministers have to provide the assumptions underneath the policy. Uh, So they have to sort of set out all of the different ways in which you might calculate this policy. And obviously, the the argument that Labour are putting is that that has been done in such a way as to make their warm homes policy uh, look as bad as possible. So they're saying, we don't recognise this policy, this isn't our policy. So it is a really problematic way of doing it. I think, as we've just been discussing, it is really valuable when there are detailed policies put out there that there is some scrutiny of them that we do have an idea about can these be paid for does you know you can't just assume there'd be a magic money tree the public have a right to to be asking these kind of questions but there must be a better way of doing it than bringing the treasury into disrepute and also misrepresenting the process whereby these these figures were come to on that uh, our colleague Gemma Tetlow has actually suggested a better process for this for this to happen, which is for the OBR to take responsibility for costing up uh, parties' manifestos, which would both add credibility and also put all parties on equal footing. So it'd get around that problem that you mentioned, Kath, of ministers sort of giving politically motivated assumptions to civil servants. It wouldn't be costless. It would require probably quite a lot more resource in the OBR. And it probably also require a bit of a juggling of the electoral calendar. It would need parties to publish manifestos a lot earlier than they do currently to actually yeah, give the, the OBR Yeah, there's, there's things time. they can do behind the scenes. So a lot of other countries have a similar mechanism and actually yeah. it allows the parties to go direct to the equivalent of the OBR with them. So it's not all sort of public in the first instance. Yeah. But yeah, the problem is that most of the work that the OBR done is actually done by officials. So the modelling work is actually done by the Treasury or by departments and so forth. So it's a question of, would you still be using civil servants to do those modelling, but the OBR would be the one who would set out the assumptions? Or do you bring much more resources into the OBR so that they could do the modelling themselves? Very interesting. Well, we've been talking a lot about elections and what parties might do as they think about preparing for government. And in that vein, we have just launched a brand new six-part podcast series called Preparing for Power. It looks at how politicians, their advisors and civil servants get ready for the possibility of being in government and takes you behind the scenes during those critical few months. Kath, you're one of the presenters. I am. Have my own little podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And here's what Gus O'Donnell told us about his way of probing manifesto commitments without offering advice. I have been known to raise my eyebrows when someone said something to me which implies they want to do something which is illegal or impossible. And you try and get across the message that maybe not. O'Donnell recalled using this approach during his first meeting with David Cameron in 2009. We had a discussion about behavioural insights team. We had a discussion about how he wanted to work, some of his policy ideas. I mean, that was where the eyebrows were working when he said, we're going to keep migration to the tens of thousands. It's challenging, I thought, that one. You know, I couldn't quite see what policies they were going to implement that would deliver that result. Let's put it that way. Rachel, campaigning to win an election while preparing for the possibility of winning it is not exactly an easy balancing act, is it? In some ways, they're contradictory, aren't they? Because what you need to say to win may be at odds with what you need to do if you actually get into power. And Stuart was highlighting it, particularly on the finances. But I think it's very important 
particularly when a party's been out of power for as long as Labour has, that they do start to think very seriously about what it would actually mean and that they meet the officials and go through in quite a lot of detail what policy plans they do have. And I think um, Starmer and his team have been doing that really for quite a long time. They haven't been meeting officials formally, but they've been thinking about what government would mean. Starmer has a version of a red box he's had for at least a year that he takes home with him every night. They all sit in the same place around the shadow cabinet table that they would sit around the cabinet table. There has been an appetite for actually thinking through the practicalities as well as the policies, which I think has got to be a good thing for the sake of the country. Yeah, we've we've definitely seen over the last 15 years, I mean, before 2010, there was quite a developed process run by Francis Maud and Nick Bowles um, of how they went about preparing. Um, and, and oftentimes it's having that small unit who's slightly separate from the people who are doing the campaigning or the manifesto or from what the shadows are doing sort of day to day, continuing to oppose the government. And that helps them to be able to focus but not to distract from what else that they need to do and Labour did the same in in 2015 it seems like they they're using the same model at the moment and it's one of the reasons why we also wrote a report out earlier in the year about how oppositions prepare because there just isn't that institutional knowledge they're all having to learn from each other about how to do it and we don't really give it that sort of same sense of professionalization that you see in like the US version which is obviously you know completely different they have 3 months they have a massive transition budget and transition team to be able to think about all of these issues. Whereas in the UK, because we have these overnight changes of government, it all has to happen sort of along the way. And then, you know, somehow you're supposed to come up with a king's speech within three weeks of taking office. It's it's an extraordinary way of doing it. It's one of those, you wouldn't start from here type things. So if you would like to hear more from Kath on this very topic, Preparing for Power is the podcast series for you. And episode one is out now. Let's turn now to the Times Health Commission, which was chaired by Rachel. Um, can you give us some background, Rachel? What, what was the commission? Why was it set up? And, and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Yeah, so it was a year-long inquiry. Um, we came at it with a completely open mind. It was this, actually the second commission we've run, as you mentioned. The first was on education. This was on health. We held fortnightly evidence sessions, hundreds of one-to-one interviews. I went around the country and around the world, actually. I went to Japan, Denmark, Ireland looking at other countries, Israel, how they do health differently to see what lessons we could learn and just come up with a set of practical, pragmatic, non-ideological proposals that could be taken up by any party. And Stuart, in fact, gave evidence, was very helpful, particularly in formulating um, our policy on how do we make health policy a longer-term endeavour. So we suggested which Stuart and colleagues helped us flesh out, the idea of a Healthy Lives Committee uh, with a legal mandate for a, um, to improve healthy life expectancy uh, over the course of the decade. And the idea is that there's so much of the NHS and health policy is dictated by the very short-term immediate political demands, too many targets from the centre, too many short-term targets about what's going to get politicians' votes. Um, And actually, what we should be thinking about is the health of the nation. Things like obesity strategy are incredibly important, public health, 
health inequalities, even housing has an impact on health. So how does the whole country pull together? How does Whitehall pull together as a whole to drive that? And we suggested a little bit like the Climate Change Committee, you should have a Healthy Lives Committee with independent experts to hold the government of the day's feet to the fire, whatever party that government is. But you've got 10 recommendations in total. Do you want to give us a flavour of some of the others? Yeah. So the the sort of core principles, if you like, apart from the need for something longer term, is that we need to move from a national sickness service, which is basically what we've got at the moment, or some people say national hospital service, to a national health service. So much more focus on prevention, community care. So that means both the great emphasis on diagnostics and scanners, as we were saying, but also on prevention in terms of making people healthier, so more tackling obesity and things like that. And then we also said that there's no answer to the NHS that doesn't involve social care and politicians from all parties have kicked that can down the road. And we are now seeing the consequences of that in the fact that 10% of hospital beds are taken up with people who are well enough to go home. And also in the sort of absolute agonies for the families and and elderly people who aren't able to get care. And then the, the sort of third prong, if you like, of our um, underpinning the whole thing was this idea that the NHS has got to get much better and the social care system at using science and technology and both the data analytics, uh, AI, genomics. Um, Patrick Ballon said to us, we're entering this new age of cures. There's, there's actually a huge reason for optimism, but the NHS is absolutely hopeless at using all this new technology. We did a poll which showed that 7% of people said that either they or their family member had actually missed an appointment because the letter didn't arrive in time. There are so many productivity gains that could be made that would make the NHS sustainable, but if we just carry on as we are, it's not sustainable. Stuart, the report also talks about historic underinvestment in capital as a key course of poor NHS performance. That's something you've thought about as well, isn't it? Yeah, we've, we've talked about a lot in the past. Uh, and I think I completely agree with the assessment. The situation in NHS is, is particularly bad. And I think it's also worth mentioning that that's a long-term issue. Governments have been very bad at investing in uh, health capital for decades. But I think it's also worth mentioning it's particularly bad in the 2010s. And that meant that the NHS entered the pandemic particularly fragile, with particular resilience and particularly vulnerable to a sort of massive system shock like COVID proved to be. What does that actually mean, though? What is capital when we talk about it? We mean things like a lack of diagnostic equipment, as Rachel mentioned, a lack of IT equipment. The example of computers not turning on is a very good one. And it also means buildings that are in very, very poor repair. Uh, it's not uncommon to have hospitals close operating theatres because of things like leaks or you know rack concrete that is found as well, which is a problem across the entire public service estate. So I think, yes, the, the problem of underestimate capital is really pervasive across the whole NHS and really holds back the productivity of staff. It's part of this short-term thinking, really, isn't it? Yeah, um, exactly, yeah. No, I, th- I think the, 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 the point in the 2010s was that capital spending got held down as a way to make it look as though inputs into the NHS were lower than they were before, which made the NHS look more actually productive in the short term. I think the problem now is that we're reaping the longer-term impact of that. And we're now having to try and scramble to catch up at a point that is generally more expensive to do so than if we'd invested up front. And the RFJ is going to be doing some broader work in the coming months on prevention. Um, so we're oh, very great. much picking up I look on forward the to same me. theme. 
Yeah, we had a, we had quite a set of proposals actually on that, um, including expanding the sugar tax, the pre-watershed advertising ban that's been shelved by the government. Um, and then also we said there needs to be much more on tackling packaging. So one of my favorite examples was in Chile. They have um, their equivalent of Frosties are called Zucaritas and they ban Tony the Tiger from the packaging. <laughs> they have to have, instead they have this black octagon with all the sort of <laughs> dire health warnings about all the sugar that's in <laughs> it so it's this idea that the it's really hard to be healthy so people and our polling showed that the voters really want more intervention from the government by a factor of three to one it's not they don't mind about it they don't have this sense that it's a nanny state they feel that they want more of a level playing field it's really difficult to make the right choices at the moment it is really interesting how paranoid politicians are about that nanny state Mm line isn't it so give us your verdict Stuart you're sort of NHS watcher in chief (laughs) Uh, do you think these recommendations are going to shift the dial I mean I think that if the government accepted and adopted everything that Rachel's commission recommended it would be a significant shift in the way that the service operates I think it's it's good to see a really system-wide view of the NHS I think it's, it's quite common for policy attention to focus on hospitals because they are partly the most visible bit, but it's really good to think to, to hear that there are recommendations about regulation, about adult social care and primary care. So I think it could be quite transformative, definitely. Phew, I feel like I'm an actor. With, <laughs> this is now yeah. the reviewer. It was, uh, that, that was tough with Rachel watching me. <laughs> Kath, I say this as director of an institute that, that does these things ourselves, but commissions come and go. But how useful are they as part of the sort of political process? Yeah, they can be um, incredibly useful. I mean, it's not always, sorry to say, that a government will just take all of the recommendations and just start to implement them directly. But what they do is, as Stuart was just saying, shift the dial. And, and particularly when they are cross-party, when they are looking to not think about the particular political party that might take it up, because it, it gets that sort of public attention to it. It gets the evidence base for why you might need to do it. It galvanizes opinion and so forth. Oppositions often commission their own commissions, um, but usually earlier in the electoral cycle as a way, like we, we saw with the Brown Commission, a way of getting some detailed work on a particular area and shifting public opinion on it. But these sorts of ones, they're really about sort of putting pressure on a government or on an opposition party to try and, and move them on and, and giving them something that's almost ready made of some policies that they can they can take up. So they can be incredibly valuable for those reasons. We were really pleased that the Education Commission, one of our flagship recommendations for what we called the British Baccalaureate and a new form of A-levels, that has been taken up by Rishi Sunak. And I think if Keir Starmer gets into power, he would go even further probably with reform of assessment and curriculum and also we propose reform of Ofsted which has certainly Labour has backed and it's kind of starting to happen already and I'm quite optimistic with the Health Commission that certainly the technology recommendations the patient passport will happen because it's such common sense and I think there is this shift in the public mood on public health and and obesity measures too. And one of the things we sometimes point out about uh, commissions uh, is that they can suffer from sort of a loss of momentum once the commission is finished and the commission disperses and then who is there to, to follow up? I guess the answer in your case is the Times is there to follow up. Exactly. We'll be monitoring their manifestos extremely closely and judging them on how far they go towards our recommendations. Well, that's the end of this week's podcast. Thank you to Kath Haddon, Stuart Hodnott, and especially to Rachel Sylvester. 
Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you all for listening to this episode. You can find all our podcasts, including our brilliant new six-part series, Preparing for Power, at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do subscribe and please leave us a review. There's also lots of exciting new content on our website where you can sign up to all our events, including one with Therese Coffey, the former Health Secretary, Environment Secretary, and Deputy Prime Minister, who will be looking back on her nine years in government, serving four different Prime Ministers. Lots to discuss there. Have a great weekend, everyone. 